This is part two of this lecture series that I've entitled God's Glorious Salvation. Uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about one particular man, but uh, we'll actually be talking about two. We're going to be talking about a debate between two bishops in church history, Augustine and Pelagius. And here's the question we're asking. Does God's sovereignty crush man's will? Now, last week we talked about God's sovereignty, and we're not done talking about God's sovereignty, but that was just kind of an overview, and we're, we're, we're taking another step in this whole process to understand what do the scriptures teach. Because at the very bottom, at the very end of the day, the, the bottom line discussion is, what does God tell us about himself and about the world that he's created? That's what we're interested in. We're really not interested in man's thoughts. <laughs> but man's thoughts um, uh, tell us quite a bit. Born in Britain in 354, probably about that age, uh, about that year, uh, note that, ver that, that age, that, that year, rather, 354. Uh, in the latter half of his life, this man, a bishop in the church, moved to Rome. He was um, a, a rather reclusive person, um, not one to put himself forth. He went to Rome in order to, to be with the, the higher-ups in, uh, in, in the Roman church. He wanted to write. His name was Pelagius. He was gravely concerned about the moral laxness in the church and set about to, to teach, to preach, to exhort not only church leadership, but people, the, the hoi polloi, the, the, the regular run-of-the-mill person in the, in the church, to live a godly life. He promoted an ascetic life, though he was not himself an ascetic. Now, he, he, was, he, was, he was a more reserved person, but he found a kindred spirit in, in a man called uh, Celestius, who was a, a like-minded lawyer, and Celestius was the guy that put spit and polish and energy on Pelagius' teaching. When Pelagius was in Rome, he heard Augustine pray. Augustine was the bishop of Hippo, uh, a city in, uh, in North Africa, present-day uh, Algeria. Um, he heard um, Augustine pray, and, and this is what he prayed. I put it on the board for you. Give what thou commandest, and command what thou wilt. Hearing that prayer, Pelagius went ballistic. Why? Okay, last week we, we looked at 
God's absolute sovereignty. He is large and in, and, and in charge of all things. Well, here's, here's the criticism of those people who, who, would, who would deny that God is absolutely sovereign. Well, that makes man a robot. That makes man an automaton. Man doesn't have any free will. He doesn't have any choices. He simply has to do what God says because God's ordained it. He's predestined it. There's no other way around it. Pelagius is the architect of something called auto-soterism. Okay, let's tear that word apart. Can you see it? Auto-soterism. Um, ism. Uh, refers to a, a, a worldview, a belief system. Um, just like feminine and feminism are two completely different things, <laughs> um, autosoterism is a, is, a, is a belief system. Okay, Now, you, you know the, the prefix auto. You drove in one this morning. Automobile. A, a, a self-mobiling... Is that a word? Is <laughs> Self-mobiling device. Okay, um, the, the the root soter is uh, is the Greek word for savior. So auto soterism is a belief that says you can save yourself. Pelagius is the chief architect. Let me explain a little further. Um, with regard to this prayer, Pelagius did not have a problem with part two. Command what thou wilt. Okay, God, you want this? You want that? Command it. And it should be done. It's okay for you to command whatever you want. You are God. He would even say, God is sovereign. Hmm... It's with the first part that he had trouble. He had apoplexy. He had a violent reaction. Give what thou commandest. Here's why he had problems with that. God doesn't need to give us anything. All we need to do is suck it up and do it. He's already commanded what he's wanted us to do in the scriptures. He doesn't need to give us anything. We just need to do it. Suck it up. You are the savior of yourself. You are the master of your own destiny. This is free will with a vengeance. This is autosoterism. We had a couple of passages that were the key ones for him. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. 
following that glorious section that talks about the incarnation of Christ, we read in verse 12, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. That's a command by the Lord Jesus. Is that not through Paul? You are to work out your own salvation. Is that not what the text says? Here's another, here's a, here's another um, verse that was key for, for Pelagius. Uh, turn over to, uh, to Matthew's Gospel. Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. All of it's in red letters. Matthew chapter 5, very last verse. Matthew 5, verse 48. Pelagius loved this verse. Therefore, Jesus says in a concluding remark, Therefore, you are to be, what's the word? Perfect. All right, there's the command of God. He doesn't need to give you anything in order to accomplish that. You just need to do it. It's all on you. That is your responsibility. Now, at the end of our time together, we're going to come back and look at these two verses um, so that you can see where Pelagius was in error. But I want you to see that these are, these are two things that were critical for him. Um, here, here is, here's um, his assertion in his own words. Pelagius said, whether we will or whether we will not, we have the capacity of not sinning. Here's another statement by Pelagius. Quote, Nothing that is good and evil on account of what we are either... Uh, let, me, let me start that again. Nothing that is good and evil on account of which we are either praiseworthy or blameworthy, is born with us. It is neither, it is rather done by us. We are born with capacity for either, but provided with neither. In other words, in Plagius' understanding, a person is born neutral. You are not holy. You are not sinful. You're, you're neutral. Um, if you're f familiar with um, uh, a philosophy, John Locke, um, British empiricist, uh, one, of the, one of the chief thinkers that was responsible for the framing of 
the Constitution and very important um, guy in, in establishing America as we know it today. Um, th there's a lot of lot of debate whether whether John Locke was a a, a, a deist or not, but um, he he was the one who popularized the idea of tabla rosa, meaning blank slate, person who is born into this world is neither a sinner nor a saint. They are born with a blank slate, morally. Uh, they, 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 are, they are neutral. And it's up to them whether they're going to respond in faith to God or they're going to go their own way, do their own thing, and get in, in trouble. It's all up to you. Now, I put in your notes that, uh, that you should have in, in your hand some key points that uh, are assertions that Pelagius made. Uh, and I've taken these from uh, uh, R.C. Sproul's book, uh, Willing to Believe. Uh, and we'll go, we'll go through these. I'll make, I'll, I'll make a, few, a few comments so that you can see where this man comes from because, my friends, this kind of thinking has invaded the church to this Point number one, God's highest attributes are his righteousness and justice. Who is going to doubt? Anybody in this room going to doubt that God is righteous and just? No. But in Pelagius's mind, this is where we understand the beginning of God's uh, character. We don't begin with God being sovereign over all. We begin that he is a just and a righteous being. That's important. We'll, we'll see why in just a minute. Everything God creates is good. Anybody going to disagree with that? It says so in the scriptures. Genesis 1, what he created is good. As created, nature can cannot be changed essentially. Oh, now we're going to have a departing of agreement. As created, nature cannot be changed essentially. Okay, He says, human nature is indestructibly good. Now, we hear it all the time in our culture. Man is basically good. Uh, point number five, evil is an act that we can avoid. Oh, again, we're going we're gonna to have troubles with here. Uh, six, sin comes via satanic snares and sensuous lust. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to disagree with that, but that's not the only place that it comes from. Seven, there can be sinless men. Serious? He's really Serious? CNN, I guess, it had not been invented at that point. Number eight, this is eight and nine to combine. Adam was created with free will and sinned through free will. All right? Adam's progeny did not inherit from him natural death. Okay? Scriptures will disagree with him at that point. 
Romans 5.12 to begin with. Um, Neither Adam's sin nor his guilt was transmitted. His sin nor his guilt was not transmitted? What? That's not what the scriptures teach. All men are created as Adam, were created as Adam was before the fall. Ah, what he's getting at now is a denial of what we call original sin. And when we, when we talk about original sin, we're talking about a, a fundamental change in mankind so that we can, um, we, we, are, we are enslaved to sin. I've just said it many times. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It is a part of our nature. This is who we are. Um, back to number, uh, number three. Nature cannot be essentially changed. Well, mankind's character, his very soul was changed. Something died in Adam when he disobeyed God. God promised that that would happen. And what died was his ability to choose to do that which was right and pleasing to God in a way that is acceptable by God. Um, Let's see, where are we? Number 13. The habit of sinning weakens the will. I'm not going to disagree with that. Uh, The the grace of God facilitates goodness, but is not necessary to achieve it. Now we're really getting at the heart of things. Um, If man really has lost something at the fall, and if it is true, Romans 5.12, that mankind has um, uh, inherited something from Adam such that we are all um, unable to respond to to God in a way that is pleasing to him. We need something that we do not have, we do not possess. That's where the grace of God comes in. God gives us what we need but cannot obtain ourselves. This idea of autosoterism is absolutely bunk. Um, he, he argues, uh, verse 14, or, or point number 14, the grace of God facilitates goodness, but is not necessary to achieve it. The grace of creation yields perfect men. The grace of God's law illumines and instructs God's grace helps us, but you don't really need it. Christ works chiefly by his example. Grace is given according to justice and merit. Uh, Here's where we go back to point number one. God's highest attributes, righteousness and justice. Grace is given according to justice and merit. That is, God gives you something to help you when you deserve it. 
this is, this is um, um, so opposed to biblical Christianity. And yet this man was a bishop in the church. An unsaved man serving God's people. Luther said that um, Pelagianism was the heresy of heresies. Uh, B.B. Warfield, uh, Princeton scholar, said the, the real question at issue was whether there was any need for Christianity at all. Whether the function of Christianity was to save or only to render an eternity of happiness more easily obtainable by man. For Pelagius, what grace accomplished, what, uh, let me say it this way, what, 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 what we benefit from grace, how we benefit from grace, or what Christ's death for us accomplished was to forgive us of our past sins so we can get back on ground zero. So that from that point on, we, we can choose to do what is right or choose to go our own way and and God's going to give us whatever we deserve. If you have done righteousness, then God will bring you into his heaven. If you haven't done righteousness, then you'll get its opposite. Um, in 410 AD, uh, when the Visigoths invaded Rome, Pelagius and his lawyer buddy, uh, Calestius, left Rome. They fled Rome uh, because of the invasion. And they went to North Africa. Remember, there's another guy in North Africa. And uh, they, went, they went to Carthage, which is in present-day uh, Tunisia. And um, the, the, the church leadership in Tunisia said, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. We're... we're we are not liking what you are putting down here, buddy. And in contact with uh, Augustine, this was this is when Augustine really became ramped up and dealt with Pelagius. And um, uh, Pelagius didn't didn't write a lot. He did write some things, but uh, Augustine said, "I just need this guy to put some things in writing because." I'm, 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 I, I need to have him say something that I can deal with rather than, oh, you just didn't understand, you know, that kind of, of uh, verbal bickering back and forth. He said, oh, I want something substantive. And finally he was able to get that from him, so he was able to, to, uh, to, to deal with Pelagius's thinking at that point. Um, but he was not welcome in, uh, in Carthage, so he went to Jerusalem. Well, Augustine had a buddy in Jerusalem. You know who he was? Jerome. He was the guy who translated the, um, uh, the uh, Greek and, and Hebrew Bible into Latin. That was, that was where he, he was the, soar, the, the source of the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. Um, so, so Augustine sent a, a note to Jerome and said, "Heads up, buddy, you got you, you got a live one coming, and he's uh, he's going to be 
living right there in your, your hometown. In 415, uh, Play just called for a, a synod meeting of the church leadership in Jerusalem because he was getting attacked from everywhere. You, you, have, you have men like Augustine who many scholars will argue was the smartest man from the disciples, the apostles, uh, th- through the entire first century. So you, you, got, you got somebody with, with that kind of intellectual horsepower attacking you, and then you've got the, the, um, uh, the combined church leadership in Carthage doing the same thing, and, and now you've you got somebody with, with scholarly knowledge like Jerome that's on your tail, um, he, he, uh, he, he was getting attacked from every which way. Good. That's the way, that's the way it needs to work. Well, um, to, to, to try to, to clear his name, Pelagius called for a, a meeting of the church leadership in Jerusalem, 415. On the appointed day, it, as it turned out, his accusers, those people that were opposed to his teaching, uh, were ill and could not attend. And so he seized the opportunity, and he presented his case in Latin to a group of people that spoke Greek. Um, so uh, so for, for lack of understanding, there was no objection. So he um, acquitted himself of any and all heresy, and the rest of the church leadership around the Mediterranean world said, <laughs> this, is, this is dirty every, every which way we look at this. In 416... Your lady. 68 bishops gathered in Carthage and another 60 in another city in Algeria. And they wrote a letter to the, to, uh, to the bishop of Rome. Um, some would say he was a, he was a pope. The, the pope actually hadn't... Uh, we hadn't evolved to that state in, uh, in, the, in the church yet. His name was Innocent I. And in this letter, the, the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the bishops in North Africa said, this, this, guy, this guy is a loose cannon. He is a heretic. He must be stopped. Um, they, uh, they, they confirmed the orthodox view of mankind's salvation. And in 418, there was a council called in Carthage where uh, it was an ecumenical council, one of the ecumenical councils uh, where... where um, uh, church leaders from all over the Mediterranean came together. And uh, together they confirmed that Pelagius and his views were heretical. They were um, apart from the scriptures. And they expelled uh, Pelagius from Jerusalem, kicked him out. He went to Rome and, or rather, he went to, uh, to Egypt and was never heard from again. Except in men like Charles Finney. You've probably heard of, of uh, Charles Finney. Um, I don't know the dates of uh, him. Uh, early, early, eight, early, early, I was going to guess early 1800s, maybe, maybe uh, mid, mid to later. Um, Char- Charles Finney um, 
well, here, let me give you a couple of, of, of uh, quotations here. Uh, Robert Godfrey, president of Westminster Theological Seminary in Escondido, said, um, never has there been a theologian in the Christian church as consistently Pelagian as Finney. R.C. said of, of him, Finney out-Pelagianized Pelagius. <laughs> he, went, he went over the top. And, and I, I, I was, I was, I, I was shocked, amazed, uh, you know, just kind of shaking my head. When I was a new believer, I, I mean, I, I had a couple things figured out. Um, but, uh, but, the, but the ministry of, of Keith Green, um, musician, was, was, was quite popular. And in his, his uh, newsletter that he sent out on a regular basis, I don't know how frequently, uh, last day's new, newsletter, you may have you may recall that, there, there were a couple of go-to guys that, that he was always enamored with. Leonard Ravenhill was one. Um, and, um, uh, and Charles Finney. I went, what? How can this possibly be? You're, you're, you're promoting a man who says, you don't need grace. Grace is nice. I mean, don't get me wrong. Grace helps you. Grace gives you a wonderful example to follow. But it's really, it's all up to you. Autosoterism. No. Well, here's Augustine's response. And I'm quoting him. This grace is free because it is neither merited nor earned. It is indispensable because it is the necessary condition for recovery. It is the sine qua non of salvation. That's a Latin phrase meaning roughly translated. Um, if you ain't got this, you ain't got that. You've you got to have grace to have Christianity. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't have one without the other. Okay? Uh, you, you have to have grace without... Uh, if you don't have grace, you don't have salvation. That's, that's what I meant to say. Um, let's see. It is prevenient because it is effectual, accomplishing God's purpose in giving it. It is indefectible because this liberating grace is perfect, infallible, and unflawed. The gift of grace is linked to God's eternal purpose and is intimately tied to his predestinating purpose. You, you, you have to have God's infusion of, of, um, of, of grace, giving us what we cannot earn, what we do not deserve. In, in order for anyone to be saved. Uh, here, here's some key points. Um, these are summarized by, uh, by, by Philip Schaff um, in his, uh, his classic, exhaustive work, uh, History of the Christian Church. Um, he says this. He, he, now he's, he's summarizing Augustine's thought in response to uh, Pelagius. Man is made in God's image. And man's fall into sin is incomprehensible. It, 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 is, it is a bit of a, 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 a head-scratcher. How, how and why did this happen? It was, so, it was so wonderful what God made. But it was a reality. 
Sin is a loss of freedom. We are in bondage to evil. Now, what we, what we sometimes call Augustinianism is more frequently called in the modern area, era Calvinism. And Martin Luther was uh, a Calvinist. Uh, his, um, even though that term hadn't even been invented at that point, Calvin wasn't even a Calvinist in, in that regard. He was a Calvinist because he was consistent with himself. But um, my, my, my point here is that, that um, Martin Luther's um, writing that he was most pleased with, that he thought was his best, was a work that he did. Uh, he was sparring with uh, a, a Greek scholar by the name of Erasmus. And, and, and the title of his book was The Bondage of the Will. He thought that was his best work. And he was, he was explaining this very point. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was a loss of freedom. There was a loss of an ability. Sin is the obstruction of knowledge. Um, Augustine uh, asserted. Not that, not that we, we lose the mind, but, but, but the mind is affected. Sin is a loss of God's grace. We are given over to our sin. Sin is the loss of paradise. It is the loss of heaven. It is the loss of blessedness with God. Um, we, we live on earth, and uh, this earth is marked with weeds and thorns, um, certainly not with paradise. Sin brings physical death. Physical death is set in at sin. It attends the whole human race. Let, let, let's go back. I, I, I can't stand it any longer. Um, take, go with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Paul's great treatise on the Christian life, on salvation, on um, how a man is right with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Because all sin. Just, just as through one man sin entered the world, through, through Adam, that is, sin entered the world, and death, as a result, came through sin. Mankind dies physically because we are sinners. Now, Pelagius said, in denial of this verse, Men die because that's the way God wired it to be. He determined that no one is going to live forever. Ever. We, we, we are all going to physically die. Paul says, the Bible says, no, there's a reason why 
we physically die, and that happens to come through sin. And sin came originally through the one man. So, end of verse 12, death spread to all men. And why did they all die? Why do all men die? Because of sin. All sin. All right. Um, so, in, in, uh, in, in summary, grace is necessary, says, uh, says Augustine. Um, there, he has a strong emphasis on God's sovereignty and a strong emphasis that the human will is in bondage to sin. Now, to say that the human will is in bondage to sin is one way to say that, that man is totally depraved. That does not mean that man is utterly depraved. Now, there's a difference. Um, A a person who is totally depraved, by that phrase, we we mean that there is nothing in my being that hasn't been stained with sin. Even the, the good deeds that I do, good deeds are in air quotes, and those are things that I would affirm are good. Um, even those things are marked, they are pockmarked with sin. It's like Swiss cheese. They're, just full, they're full of sin. I show kindness to somebody. Other people say, oh, aren't you such a wonderful person? No, I show kindness because I really wanted something from them. God says all of our righteous deeds, what we think are righteous, are, are what? Like dirty rags, filthy, dirty rags. I can't please God in the way he wants to be pleased by his definition. Simply with what I have. I don't have the capacity, the ability to do that. All right, let's go, our, our, our time's getting short. Let, let me go back to those two verses I promised that we would, we would, uh, we would consider. Let's start with the, first, the second one that we looked at in Matthew chapter 5. End of the Sermon on the Mount. No, not the end of it. No, the, not the end of it, but, but the end of chapter 5, I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Now, I want you to notice... Uh, before we look at uh, verse 48, I, I want you to notice verse 20 of Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus is talking. I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The regular rank-and-file people of Jesus' day thought the scribes and the Pharisees were the pinnacle, the high point of, of righteousness and spirituality. You can't get any better than these guys. And yet Jesus says, you've got to do more than that. What? How is that possible? You can't be more righteous than that. And so the rest of, of uh, chapter 5, Jesus goes through different aspects of the Ten Commandments. Different, different, uh, uh, different ones of the uh, of commandments. He says, 
uh, verse 21, you, you shall not commit more murder. You've heard that. Well, I tell you, Jesus says, if you look with hatred in your heart, you have violated that command. You have heard it say, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the scribes and the Pharisees are patting themselves on the back. Yep, got that one. Haven't done that one either. And Jesus said, no, wait a minute. If you look with lust at another person, you have violated the spirit of that command. And Jesus goes on with, with, uh, with, with some of the other commandments that we, that we find in the scriptures. And at the very end of the chapter, he comes down here. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Pelagius said, if God commands it, he implies, he is just and righteous, remember. He implies that you have the ability to do that. God would be unfair to say, you have to do this and not give you the power and the ability to do it. Jesus says, you are to be perfect. He doesn't imply that we have the capacity to do that. His whole point here in going through the law, showing them, even the scribes and the Pharisees, guilty, 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 guilty. His point is, there are none that are perfect. You cannot please God on your own. It is a way for Jesus to say the only hope you have is to kneel before my cross and beg for mercy. Your only hope is by the grace of God. That's it. Jesus is not implying that you have the capacity to be perfect in any Pelagius completely misunderstood that verse. Okay, the, the last one uh, over in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 12. Just as you have always obeyed it, not in my, not in my, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. Kenny, I'm going to have you pass out one of these plates of wine to split the wine. Give me the back part. I'll do these first parts for you. I'm handing out to you a, um, a graphic that I put together a couple weeks ago. Um, on the nature of salvation, um, I, I, I hope. That, well, this is this is going to be very very simplified for uh, for, for many of you, um, but but for those that are in process of being saved in in the fullness, we have these aspects of salvation, and sometimes we use the word salvation to refer to our justification, sometimes to our sanctification, sometimes to our glorification. The, 
the aspect of justification is when a person is declared righteous before God. This is, this is the beginning of my relationship with God. And it is by God's grace at this time that I now have the ability and the capacity to please God in a way that he wants to be pleased and served. Uh, when I'm glorified, that's after I'm, I'm, I'm dead and now the resurrection is, has taken place and in this glorified body, I am living in the Lord's presence for the rest of eternity. Um, the act of justification, the act of glorification is a monergistic work, meaning that this is something that God does completely apart from me. The, the work of sanctification is, is, is a synergistic work, meaning that, that I am cooperating with the Holy Spirit. I am growing in holiness uh, over the course of, of maybe many years. Uh, for a person who comes to faith in Christ late in life, it's only going to be a short period of time. Um, but but, but for, for many people, that will be for their lifetime. They are in this process of sanctification where they are growing and they are maturing in their walk with Christ. Back to Philippians chapter 2. Earlier in this chapter, he is talking about um, um, uh, doing things, working, serving um, as unto Christ in a Christ-like manner. So he's talking to people who have already been justified. He's talking to people who are in the process of their sanctification. And it's to them that he says in verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He is specifically talking about this process of sanctification. He's not talking about this state of justification like he... Uh, uh, like we, uh, like I, I talked about, this is this is how I I begin my my walk with Christ. That is a monergistic work of, of God. He is the one solely and only that is involved in that. I am spiritually dead. Ephesians two one. I am incapable of pleasing God on my own. I need something that I do not have and cannot possess. By the grace of God, he gives that to me. And then, in the process of sanctification, I am growing and I am maturing and I am doing more and more as Christ. Pelagius completely obliterated that verse and, and tw twisted it um, like, like a wax nose so that you didn't even recognize it anymore. 